Well, with your Bibles open, please be seated. What do y'all think? Does everyone that starts a marathon finish the marathon? Let me maybe move your head and work with me here. Brian's like not in your, on your life. What do you think? Does everybody that starts a marathon finish a marathon? I'm getting a lot of negativity out there today. I wanted to take a look at this question, and I found out from various sources that 17% of people that start a marathon do not finish a marathon. Of course you're right. But then I thought, wait a minute, what about the Boston Marathon? I mean, you've got to qualify for that thing. You've got to be able to, if you're, between the eight, if you're in the younger age group, it's a three-hour qualification. If you're a lady, three hours and three and a half hours. Well, did you know that in 2022... 25,314 athletes crossed the starting line, the Boston Marathon, but only 24,918 finished, which means, y'all know what a DNF is? They did not finish. They did not finish. How many? 396 of the Boston Marathon. That's the oldest marathon in the world. Don't check Wikipedia right now to check my fact, but I looked at this up. This is the oldest marathon in the world and the most qualified in the globe. 396 people didn't finish. Why do I start this way? Because in the book of Hebrews, people that were Jewish started to follow Jesus. And there was a preacher. This is a sermon, just like right today. This is a sermon. He preaches a sermon because a lot of people that were super excited about this Amazing story about God becoming a man, dying on a cross for your sin. He's resurrected. They started to follow Jesus. And guess what? A lot of them weren't going to make it over the finish line. And it wasn't academic. It wasn't like, oh, that just should go back and do retraining. If you are not in a connection with Jesus Christ, you are eternally not in a connection with God. And I know if you're here today and you're not a Christian, You may have come to different churches, and sometimes there's encouraging sermons. Sometimes there's things that you hear that are informative. Today, I speak to you as a man who I believe in this southern, in South Charlotte, this, what we are hearing today is as serious as if somebody right now in the YMCA pool, if a child were drowning right now, we would want to run and save this child. It's this serious. And the book of Hebrews has this tone about it. And we don't always like to go there. We love to be distracted. We love to be excited. But if we enter this story and own it, we learn that these people that are all into Jesus lost heart. Did you know the word heart came up four times as Scott read this section of the sermon? Heart. They lost heart. Typically, when people run a marathon, physically, they start to get really thirsty Their glucose runs out. Some of you have run a marathon. They hit the wall. They lose heart. Sometimes it's mental. They have gone out so hard, even though they were qualified, and they're realizing my body's not doing it. I'm far behind. I'm not meeting my goal. They lose heart. These Jewish Christians were following Jesus, and they thought Christianity was a sprint. It is not. It is a marathon. It got hard. They got frustrated. Anybody relate to that with your week? 
They started to distrust the voice of God, disbelieve. They were discouraged. And back then, it was just like today. The prevailing script out there, the prevailing wind, is it's, life's about power. It's about pleasure. It's about position. It's about possessions. No different than today. And we hear about Jesus who says, follow me, and life's going to get hard, and don't stop following. He was such a good preacher. He knew his audience. Did you know, as Thomas started our worship service, this preacher knew that the Jew, which means Jesus, every single Sabbath would start their Sabbath, and the people would hear these words. Today, if you hear the voice of God, don't harden your heart. Can you imagine going to church every week at Aspen Grove, and you heard Daryl or myself or a leader say, today, if you hear God's voice today, do not harden your heart. Week after week after week, you'd probably tune it out. But this preacher says, I know how to get the attention of those that may not finish the race. I'm going to bring up this idea of today. Now, the Jew was always into listening to the voice of God. I know we are listening to all sorts of voices. I have voices in my head often saying things like, you're not a great leader, Howard. You're not doing good enough, Howard. Aspen Grove, it's never going to make it because you're hardly giving it attention, Howard. I got voices in my brain all the time. I wonder what voices you hear. They hear voices. So the Jew, every morning and every evening, would say the Shema. Some of you know this. They would have to say it. Now, I have the confession. I get up in the morning, and the first thing I do is I look at my phone. I'm responsible. Maybe something happened at work during the night. Maybe a patient fell. And every night before I go to bed, I'm going to confess, I look at my phone. I'm listening to voices, but if you were a Jew, you'd get up in the morning and you'd say, hear, listen, Israel. The Lord's God. The Lord's one. You'd say this every morning, every night. If you met Jesus when he was 23, Jesus, what's the first thing you did in the morning? Are you crazy? I said the Shema. Every day, their heart, which for us, it's this steering wheel that goes against, goes away from God and listens to all these voices. They would start their day, they would end their day saying, I'm listening to the voice of God. I'm listening to the voice of God. What do you do with your heart every morning and every night. I don't know. Deuteronomy 6.4. Let's just look at this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord's one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, that these words that I command you today shall be where? On your heart. Here's the problem. People were following Jesus. They were saying these words. They're learning the Jesus way. And the truth about Jesus was landing on their heart and it wasn't sinking in. Some of your hearts today are numb, or you numb your hearts with a lot of stuff. Some of you have hearts that have been wounded. A wounded heart, it's very hard to take in the voice of something else when you are wounded. Some of you are just resistant. This whole thing about Jesus, all that he expects, you got your life to live, and you're resistant. I don't know... But I know that when we hear the Shema and we hear this section of the sermon in Hebrews, twice Scott read, today, 
if you hear his voice. So what are we calling this sermon? Tenderize your heart today. If you guys tenderize meat, you're going to beat it with a mallet. You're going to put little enzymes and, and marination in there. I know you don't want to eat meat that's not awesome or vegetables that are not awesome. What do we do with the heart? What's awesome about this preacher, he's going to give four ways you can tenderize your heart, even today. And if you're not a Christian, you might walk out of here with a new heart. This is exciting. Let's hear and look at the four ways. Number one, look back and remember the rebellion. Number two, examine your own heart. Number three, pay attention to how you can encourage somebody else's heart. And lastly, grip Christ like never before. So let's jump in. Tenderize your heart today by remembering the rebellion. I know we're Americans. I know everything's forward. But we got to look back on our origin story. Remember the rebellion. If you're not a believer, I'll just catch you up. If you are a believer, remember. We're Christians in 2024, but we stepped into the stream of a story where one and a half million Israelites were enslaved. They had the most immersive experience with the living God because Moses shows up, there's these plagues, they walk across a Red Sea, they are free. I know a lot of you in here that are Christians had that experience. You were in high school, you were at home and you heard Jesus, you walked an aisle, maybe you didn't walk an aisle, but you became a member of a church. You had this experience which for you, really, you heard Jesus. If you were one of those Israelites, you haven't tasted anything of what they experienced. In the middle of their camp was fire at night. They were set free from 430 years of slavery. And yet, these Jewish Christians would follow Jesus and potentially fall away. Remember, he's saying to these people, the rebellion. Now, that's an event. What is the rebellion? Well, first of all, when you rebel, and I, I rebel, what is a rebellion? It's when there's an authority who's giving direction, and we organize ourselves to oppose that authority. Do you have a rebellious heart at times? But this refers to an event that happened in their history, and you could read it in Psalm 95. But Psalm 95 refers to Exodus 17, and here's the event. They all go free, which was totally by grace. They didn't deserve it. And they're in the wilderness, and they start to get thirsty. The kids get thirsty. I was thinking about you, you going to Salt Lake City with the, uh, with the family, you know, and I'm thinking, here you are, out there, and there's no water. You're glad you're free, but there's no water, and you start to go, I don't know if I can believe God. And God's like, no, no, I've freed you. I'm going to bring you to a promised land. Listen to me. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm your God. I just freed you. But they get thirsty. Their hearts get thirsty. And there's no water, and Moses says, hold up, everybody. He grabs a, literally a piece of wood, he grabs a piece of wood when they're all freaking out and he takes the wood and he throws it in this water which was bitter and the wood, I don't know how, made the water sweet and they were saved. 
They did not trust. They did not deserve the wood. They did not deserve the water, but God's a God of grace. And wouldn't you know, a little bit later in their life, in the wilderness, they get thirsty again. They forget. Their hearts become hard. They organize themselves and they say to Moses, you're trying to kill us out here. You're trying to kill us out here. And God is not out here. God is nowhere around. We're going to die. And here is God. Imagine. He has loved them. He has saved them. These are his people. And they tested him by that attitude. You could read about this yourself in Exodus 17. It's called the rebellion. If you want to have a heart that's soft, he's saying to these people, as he says to us today, you got to look back on what our hearts really do when we don't have our desires the way we want them. Have you ever been driving along the road and all of a sudden you hit what's called a rumble strip? You know what this is? It's an audible rumble. It's a warning. It's a vibration. It's an alarm that says you're veering off the path. When I was preparing with Samuel and my, bro- my son-in-law, Micah, to run a marathon uh, in Charlotte, I was very encouraged by a young man who was 25 named Kelvin Kiptoom. He had one of the fastest marathons ever. Well, unfortunately, Kelvin Kiptoon um, died. A little over a week ago, his car veered off the road and he hit a tree, and Kelvin Kiptoon is not alive. He's not running any more marathons. His car did not stay where it needed to stay. What the preacher will do, and I don't know if you caught it when Scott read, he will ask six questions, and they act like a rumble strip because it's a question, a question, a question. He's trying to say to people that are not going to finish, Listen, there's a serious warning when you remember. Let's see if you can get the effect. Verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it all those who left, who left Egypt led by Moses? Here's what that first rumble is saying. These people are slaves. They've got no hope. God loves them totally by grace, brings a million and a half people to total freedom. Who are the ones that said, I will organize myself and push against you? It was the people that experienced grace. Remember that. People that can initially taste grace will stop listening to God and will rebel. Remember this, this happens. Verse 17, two questions again. Hey, with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Now, some of you are like, Howard, you keep bringing up these big numbers. Where do you get that? Numbers one, interesting, it's the book of Numbers, because it's counting these people. Remember it says in verse 45, all those listed of the people of Israel from 20 years old and upward, all those listed were 603,550. Now we know there were wives. We know there were children. That's why usually you hear people say it's probably a million and a half people. So all these people, they're out there, they're rebelling. And I kind of did a little bit of math. What's so sad here is that when you don't want God and God says you're going to experience wandering around because you're not listening to my voice, you're veering off, 
about 90 people a day died in that wilderness. When I was leading a progressive care unit and an intensive care unit, I could remember days where we had three or four deaths, and it broke me. And it broke my nurses to see three or four people die in our community. Can you imagine 90 people a day because of the rebellion dying and being buried in the sand? How do you have a soft heart? Yes, it's negative. Yes, it's a wake-up call. Yes, it's a rumble strip. Question after question. They were graced. They didn't want to follow Jesus. They didn't want to follow the voice of God. So let's look at the last two. Um, well, I'm sorry. The, the last, uh, what I wanted to say to you, to you all as far as uh, connecting this to us today, we can, we can mention these old stories. We can bring them up and you can sit there and say, interesting history. But don't forget what it says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1. Let's put that up. Paul was talking to a church like us. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, all who were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, nevertheless, with most of them, God wasn't pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now check this out. These things took place as examples for us. Why? So that we might not desire evil as they did. If you ever hear a sermon where we're talking about stuff in the Old Testament, what a gift that we today have an example. So for us, for them, how do we get soft hearts? Remember the rebellion. Remember the rebellion. Okay, let's look at, this. Let's look at something more positive because that's hard. The preacher says, tenderize your heart today by examining your own heart. Examine your own heart. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care. Uh, perform a self-exam. Culture will tell you to look into your hearts for inspiration. Oh, not, 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 not with this. Scripture tells us to look into our hearts for examination. What do you obsess over for significance? What do you obsess over for security? What voices penetrate and you start following the direction of that voice? What responsibilities have you taken on that you really should not have taken on? Maybe a good question. We get really responsible when we're following the voice of something that's so important to us that is not God. There's a cultural critic named Neil Gabler, and I was surprised when I saw this phrase, but I'm seeing it in my own life and in those that are in South Charlotte. He says that there's actually a new American dream. Now, remember, we're trying to do a little self-examination, and most of us here, I know Tomas, you're from Brazil. Most of us are Americans here right now, and it's really spread. The old American dream was rags to riches. Work hard, you'll make it. But the new American dream is that we might actually be able to realize perfection through our performance. Perfect skin, perfect kids, perfect career, perfect you. Self-exam. The Christian story makes no sense without grace. Grace requires nothing of you except for your sin. Self-examine yourself. 
take care unless in you is an evil, unbelieving heart. Look for an evil, unbelieving heart. Evil, we don't talk like that. You're evil. You know what evil means? Not good. You know what good means? Going the direction of a good God. Evil is, I'm not going to go his direction, I'm going to go my direction, because I believe what I want more than what he wants. It's a directional disorder with God's good purpose. My mother and father met at Moody Bible Institute, and the one phrase from Moody, who started that school, gives me the shivers. Listen to it. He said, our greatest fear shouldn't be failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't even matter. How many of our friends and neighbors, how many of us should self-examine to say, is the life that we're living mattering for the good purposes of God? You know a telltale sign when you do a little self-exam is you start to turn and walk away from the reference point of God. You walk away from Him. You go your own direction. You do what you want. Telltale sign, you will feel restless. I've had some restless moments this week. And every time, it's when I'm holding on to myself, taking a responsibility to try to listen to a voice that's not a voice of God, but it's some other prevailing voice. We were not meant to be restless of soul. Verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. When you look inside, you're looking for unbelief. Remember, they were told, you're saved, you're going to get a promised land, I'll provide for you. They didn't want to hear that because when they got thirsty and when life got hard, their hearts became hard. We were made for eternal rest and we can't find it on our own. I love to watch Canadian geese fly. They're flying, they're working. I tend to be in leadership positions and I like it that the one goes in the front and helps the others. But what I love is when that goose is done doing all the work and they glide onto a quiet pond and ski to a stop. I love that because that's the way our hearts are to be when we rest on Christ, not on all of the work that we're doing. Some of you say, get practical, Howard. That goose thing was interesting. I, don't, I like the feeling, but help me out here. Number one, Start to live a life of discipline over distraction. Self-exam. I check my phone in the morning, and I check it at night, but in between, boy, do I check my phone and get distracted a lot. I'm not saying it's wrong to look at things, but I was looking at Time Magazine last week. The most listened-to man on our planet is a 25-year-old on YouTube named Mr. Beast. I'm seeing people go, I've heard of him. Why are we listening to a 25-year-old making YouTube videos that, quite frankly, are distractions? I, yesterday, I was at work, and I, started, I walked up to five different nurses, and I said, have you heard of Mr. Beast? They looked like I was absolutely late to the party. They're like, what have I not looked at with Mr. Beast? Now, listen, I'm not saying it's wrong that Mr. Beast is a creative what I'm saying is, if you want your heart to receive the voice of God, it's not dead, it's not numb, it can't be distracted, it needs to be disciplined and self-examine 
How often you scroll and scroll and scroll. By the way, you will never get to the end of a TikTok scroll. I've tried it. They don't end. Self-examine, discipline, that means to become a learner and to face the hard things over distraction. Practical number two, let's be vulnerable and have vulnerability over veneer. How much of your life are you putting into just making sure that you're impressive? You got it. It looks good on the outside. Stop. That, that, is, that is going to just kill your heart. Don't fake it and manage appearances. Okay. We've looked back to the rebellion. Oh, that's hard stuff. But it's an example because we get rebellious. We've, we've looked in. Not for inspiration, but for examination. Let's look out. Let's look out at each other. Tenderize your heart today by encouraging one another. Verse 13, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Exhort one another, when? Every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In Greek culture, if Travis and I were Roman warriors, we would never go against the enemy without exhortation. It's a Greek word which meant we are warriors. And by the way, if I went out, I would be glad to be with you. (laughs) We would get back to back because I can't see what's behind me and he can't see what's behind him, but back to back, bring it on. And Rome walked over their enemy with this tactic. Paul creatively says, I'm sorry, some people think Hebrews was written by Paul. I actually don't. The writer of this sermon, who may have been Paul, said, listen, guys, you want to make sure your heart stays soft. You got to be the guy that says, Travis, let's fight. I got your back. Because you can't see how you're being deceived. You can't see how your little narrative and your little life, I can see it. I'm going to help you each day. I love that he chose that word. Come alongside every day. Our hearts can get so cold so fast. I love making a cup of coffee. I sit down, I get all cuddled up. Then I got to go to the bathroom. I come back, sit down. That coffee is cold. It irritates me. Our hearts can get cold quicker than that. But not if we're encouraging each other every day. From what? The deceitfulness of sin. Sin is a power. It deceives us. What is deceit? I said it this way. It's a misrepresentation of reality with the motive to mislead you. It's an advertisement of pleasure that will deliver pain. It's 9.30 at night. You could have family time. You could have time with God. You could listen to his voice and you start scrolling. And an hour and a half later, you're going, I just feel dirty about this. What a waste of time. What a lazy bum. The heart, which is supposed to be hot, fervent, can so quickly become cold because of the deceitfulness of sin. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart's deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then Ephesians, one of the letters from Paul, Paul tells us that the very human nature, apart from God's saving work, in verse 22 of chapter 4, it's corrupt through what? Deceitful desires. We love to want things, desire things. Let me tell you how this works in life. I did 15 years night shift. I would drive with five kids. I was tired in my life a lot. I'd get in the car and I'd drive and I'd work all the shift and I'd have to drive home. 
And all of a sudden, I'd be like, I'm so tired. Keep your eyes open. I'm just so tired. You know, if I close my eyes just a second, the car's cool. It's, it's center, not a lot of traffic. If I, just a second, it will not be a big deal. I've had three or four times in my life where I have opened my eyes after that deceitful little self-talk, and I've gone, where the heck? Oh, my goodness. And I almost killed myself. I share that story because we can see in each other where we deceive ourselves with, if I just close my eyes a second, if I just do this a little bit, we can deceive ourselves. Does Does anybody remember years ago, those of you that are a little older, Cleveland... Ohio was not the place you wanted to bring a ship because there is a terrible thing that happened on the Cuyahoga River. You see, up until 1969, people just dumped a little bit of toxic waste into the river. They had little fires here and there, and everybody's like, just a little bit of toxic waste into the river. But that little bit of toxic waste in 1969 in June blew up. It would cause our country to create the Environmental Protection Agency. And people finally said, why would a river catch fire? Because just a little bit of toxic waste over and over and over can cause a terrible problem. You know, for some of us, it's just a little bit of anger this week. It's just a little bit of lying. Just a little greed. If I just, a little greed in my heart, not a lot of greed. I'm not as greedy as that person. A little emotional affair with somebody that I want to reconnect with. A little bit of porn, a little bit of selfishness. You know what? I know I should be thankful, but I'm really not. And I'll just be a little unthankful today. Oh, what's the solution? encourage each other daily, moment by moment. I brought today something I'm proud of. I finished the marathon. But I tell a story I'm not proud of. At mile 22 or 23, I wasn't running with Samuel. I wasn't running with Micah. I was pretty out of it. My heart was tired. I was pretty, and I miss a turn. I'm running up a hill. And I have a lady literally run up to me and she's like, are you wanting to finish the marathon? I'm like, yeah, you need to turn around. I thank God for that lady. Might've been an angel. Maybe Samuel would have come back and got me. But I, I needed someone outside of myself to say, you're going the wrong way. I know we're nice people at Aspen Grove. I know we are but it might be you saying to a brother or a sister, hey, you want to turn around? Because I give this credit to Micah and to Samuel and to that lady. I couldn't do it alone. We cannot do it alone. I like what Michael Kruger, a professor that both Daryl and I had, he's got this great statement about accountability. Accountability, it's the ally in our war against apostasy. I know that's a churchy word. Apostasy means you're falling away from the goal. 
is there anybody that you check in on each day? Are we checking in on each other? Are we watching out for each other? It's a war. Travis, you and I are never going to be Roman warriors, but we're going to experience this week some really tough stuff, some really hard stuff. Who right now in this church family are you back to back with? Does anybody come to mind? We cannot isolate. And remember the mission we have to our city is to inspire learners to believe. This happens with this. Okay, lastly, we've looked back. We've looked in. We've looked out. We've got to grip Jesus Christ if you want a soft heart. You've got to grip him tight. Tenderize your heart by gripping Christ. Where does it say that in the sermon? Verse 14. We've come to share in Christ if we what? Hold our original confidence. What's the original confidence? It's what Jesus Christ has already done. We've got to grip him. How? Firmly. I googled who currently has the best grip in the world. It's a 74-year-old man named Odd Haugen. Which, by the way, you're losing your grip in your life. Walk up to one of our older saints in this congregation. Odd Haugen, why does he have the grip of grips? Because he practiced picking up trees. I find that kind of interesting. He also has a rather large hand. But he's worked on that grip to keep it firm. Maybe this phrase will help you this week as you grab hold of what Christ has done. Motion activates emotion. I don't really feel close to God. I don't feel like church. I don't, my heart's a little numb. I'm supposed to grip Christ. Odd Haugen would go out every day and grab big trees because he wanted to have the best grip on this planet. It was a sports goal. When I say grip Christ, I don't want to lose you in the metaphor. Let's go back to our story. And if you're not a Christian, learn our story. One and a half million Israelites are set free totally by grace. They whine, they complain. A piece of wood is thrown into the water and it becomes sweet and not later, much later at all. They whine, they complain, they rebel. And what happens to them? Well, let's read about it in Numbers chapter 14. Moses says, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. They're not gripping you. Just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt till now. And then in verse 20, oh, I love it. The Lord said, I've pardoned according to your word. Now, many of those people did not enter the promised land, but we know because of the sacrifices and the stories, many of those people you will meet even though they had drifted Jesus Christ was somehow there, even in the wilderness, because what happened with Jesus, and we must grip this, is that wood was thrown into the water. That's interesting, because Jesus dies on a cross. They're complaining, they're whining, they're going to get pardoned, and God says, but you've got to do one thing, Moses, they're still thirsty. You've got to take your stick, and you've got to hit this rock as hard as you can. 
and Moses hits a rock, our hearts could become like a rock. Our hearts can be hard. He hits a rock, and the rock gushes forth water. Would you know that Jesus Christ would come on the cross? He would be struck, and he would die. On that cross, his heart would be broken for you. He would cry out, Father, total abandonment. He never rebelled, but he wanted the rebellious ones to be brought back into the family. And when he was struck, blood and water come out. If you grip that good news today, your heart will be tenderized. I end with one of my favorite verses from the Old Testament. None of us here are big-time farmers, but Hosea 10.2 says this, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love. And listen to this, Break up your fallow ground, for it's the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and reign. This is my question for you as we end. Today, Jesus woke up every morning, Listen, here, the Lord is one. He went to Sabbath. Today, if you heard Jesus' voice, if you heard the voice of the living God, don't harden your heart. I'm asking you right now, today, would you allow this to break up those hard hearts that we all have and allow the grace of God in Christ to tenderize you? Would you believe that today? Let's pray. Father, I know this was a 2,000-year-old sermon. Here we are gathered, we're singing, but we're going back to our story. Father, I still believe that you are softening hearts. I still believe that a stony heart today will walk out fully alive and beating, believing in you. Father, forgive us for the ways that we get off track, the way we rebel, the way we resist. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Many of you are giving to our mission, and I just think it's wonderful, but I want to read a verse about giving, because it has to do with the heart. 2 Corinthians says, each one must give as he's decided, read this with me, in his heart. Let me go after again because we don't pass a plate. Uh, you could give online. You can give to mission and ministry, but let's go back to that verse again. Each one must give as he's decided, read it with me, in his heart. And when you do, not reluctantly or under compulsion, God loves a cheerful giver. You talk about God loving you, God loves it when you say, let me give to ministry and mission. I recently watched the, uh, the short, um, the Netflix story about We Are the World. I was kind of at the age where that was the cool song. And, you know, they, they raised, with We Are the World, they raised $80 million for famine relief. $80 million. I thought, how are we doing as Christians? Well, I'm encouraged to tell you that 
Every year, according to one source, the Church of Jesus Christ gives $17 billion to global missions. That means today, churches will gather around the globe and give quadruple the amount of that $80 million every week. I love our celebrities. I love that Michael Jackson and Huey Lewis and Lionel Richie saying we are the world. But Christians, when we experience the grace of God and our hearts start to give, this is what we're getting out to global mission and ministry. But we must be nourished by the gift that God gives us, and we do that in communion. Let me pray for our hearts. Lord, it says in Proverbs, honor the Lord with your first fruits. We talk about giving during worship because it's about worship. Some of us in here are part of the story where we're getting money out to mission. Some of us are being convicted. We don't want reluctance. You don't want reluctance. You want softness in giving. Help this supper to nourish us, to have hearts that are sending our stuff out to those that have need. In Christ's name we pray, amen.